So let's pray first because that's going to be the most important part if we're trying to do that. So Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your word. We're grateful for the promises that you've given us as a body of believers. We have each other. We have fellowship under you, all of us in Christ trying to better ourselves, but also, Lord, more specifically, trying to do the things that you would have us do while we're on earth for the limited amount of time, whatever that ends up being, that we're actually here. Lord, I pray that you be with us, that you empower us to godly living, and especially as we're looking into your word, looking at the more controversial issues regarding your coming, I ask that you continue to show us and highlight to us the promises that you've made within the text, specifically pertaining to the ones where you promise we do not have to go through certain aspects of the future, specifically relating to the tribulational period. And those are so clear that it, it brings me joy to read them. And so, Lord, I ask that you help us to really rely on those promises and to read your word and interpret it in a consistent, literal manner to come out with the conclusion that you would have us do. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're studying the rapture of the church again. We're going to skip a little bit of our introduction, um, but just so you know, we've went all over the map with this study. We've spent quite a bit of time looking at the doctrine of imminence, that Jesus could come back at any moment. Um, we looked at the New Testament, saw that it's taught not only a little bit, but consistently through the entirety of the New Testament. Having looked at all of these things, we looked at all of the objections to that particular viewpoint. I shouldn't say all the objections. There were a few more that I thought about adding, um, but those were the best ones. Um, we could have answered the other ones in about 20 minutes, so I figured it wasn't even worth the time. That being said, we look at our foundational reasons for a pre-tribulational rapture, which I can see and you can't, so trick of the trade. Um, that being said, and this is where I think we really get into the meat and potatoes if you just look at the top right of the screen, I'm just, I'm kidding. Um, we have four basic alternative viewpoints when it comes to the idea of the rapture. There are those that believe that it's going to happen after the tribulational period. Those are known as the post-tribulation rapturists. We, know, we have this idea that only a certain portion of the church is going to be raptured immediately. This is going to be like a strobe show the entire time, so I'm... We have our best guy on it. <laughs> um, now, the partial rapture theory is pretty much the easiest to debunk. Um, it's actually very easy because they're actually departing from the idea that the canon of Scripture is the encompassed revelation of God. They actually believe, a lot of them, that revelation continued after the closing of the canon. And they don't mean it in a God-told-me-to-get-a-job kind of way. They mean it in a God-could-add-to-this. <clears throat> That being said, there are two different viewpoints that we're going to be looking into when we get into that perspective. The one of them says that the church is raptured, only the faithful believers at the coming of the Lord, pre-tribulational normally is where they end up being. And then they believe that all the unproductive Christians, and they're very careful about the way they choose to word this, um, are going to be raptured later at the end of the tribulational period. So they mold the idea of Israel and, and the church towards the end of the tribulational period. What's interesting about them is that in every other area, they would be by grace, through faith, alone, in Christ alone for your salvation. Their soteriology is pretty good. Their Christian life is pretty good. But they mess up on this area. 
So we'll look at that in, uh, as soon as we're done with the post-tribulational perspectives. The mid-trib viewpoint is what it is. It's the, they believe the rapture happens at the midpoint of the tribulational period. The pre-wrath rapture is a little bit more complicated because every single one of those viewpoints, even the post-trib group, would all claim to be pre-wrath in the fact that they believe that the wrath of God is not falling upon believers. The pre-wrath rapture group on its own, though, is a little bit different because they're categorically uh, making distinct different versions of what they would consider to be God's wrath. So the little wrath, that's okay. That's, you can be under that. We're all under trials and tribulations. But the big wrath, the, the big boy wrath that happens later on in the trip, that's what you're not going to be actually privy to. So we'll look at those when we get to that perspective. So I'm going to skip about 100 slides so we can get back to the other area. It's a little bit different on Microsoft PowerPoint than it is on Proclaim. So just to give you kind of a, a little monologue while we're doing this, we, in order to figure out what somebody believes on the topic of the rapture of the future, you have to look at three verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 54, and then John 14, verses 1 through 3. And so those are the basic verses that would give us an idea of what the rapture is. And so how alternative perspectives handle those verses tell us most of what we need to know about their positions. Now, to do that, we spent quite a bit of time on this. We looked at Douglas Moo, uh, a brilliant biblical scholar who happens to disagree with us in this particular area, um, as well as uh, Robert Gundry. They have a lot of good materials, but we would disagree with them on the topic of the rapture because they believe that the rapture is going to be happening after the tribulational period. Now, to get on to what we've been doing for the past three weeks, we've been looking at what I would consider to be six main arguments, the sixth one being the nitty-gritty Tereo Ek argument we looked at a little bit in a little bit more detail when we studied Revelation. Um, first one that we looked at was their premise, their assumption is that it is possible for God to choose to protect his people during the tribulational period. This is something we're going to be getting into in a little bit more detail probably next week at this point, uh, looking at our timeline. And we looked at this idea. They base it in an Old Testament promise given to Israel during the time of Jacob's trouble, where Israel is going to be protected. We know this because in order for God to bring the kingdom to come, as it's been prophesied in the Abrahamic covenant, all of the sub-unconditional covenants, Israel is the means or vehicle in which God promises to bring the kingdom forth. So, theoretically, if Satan wants to stop said kingdom, it makes logical sense that if all he has to do is destroy Israel. So, we see a heightened demonic attack against Israel in the midst of the tribulational period. And so, what God does is he provides provision for those people. That being said, even in the midst of that provision, what, what do we see? We see two-thirds of that nation being destroyed. We see that in the Zechariah, the book of Ezekiel. We see a lot of references to that. And the next argument is what I call the trumpet argument, which is, while well, we see a trumpet in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We see a trumpet in 1 Thessalonians. Um, we see a trumpet call in Matthew chapter 24. So, must be the same event, right? So we talked about what trumpets did in the Bible, the purposes for trumpets. They are multi-purpose, and it is possible to have more than one trumpet. In fact, the Bible talks about many trumpets. 
being talked about. So the presence of one point of similarity doesn't make sudden equality between the two. And I know this is pretty fast for review. Um, we've just gone over about five hours worth of material up to this point in the last eight minutes. So if you have any questions, we have five hours worth of material in the past. So that being said, the next argument is not really an argument. They're suggesting that the word for meeting in First Thessalonians chapter 4 um, hints at a post-tribulational rapture. Now, we looked into that. It simply means to meet. If you look at Strong's Concordance, you'll actually come to that very conclusion. And there's no uh, implicit definition of the word meet that surpasses that of the original language. <clears throat> it's not present. There is nothing there. Now, and this is the argument that we've been working on then, or as of last week, which is this idea that, well, if we're looking in Mark chapter 13, we're looking in Matthew 24, we see this idea that Christ, Jesus, is going to be gathering the elect. Well, that sounds a lot like the church. If you read through the book of Ephesians, if you read in Colossians, um, through the New Testament, the book of Romans, you're actually going to see references to the church as being the elect of God. We are. But what do we know about the word elect? It is not a technical term, which means, in, uh, in Bible speak, that basically means that it does not mean the same thing everywhere it's used. So when we look at the Old Testament, at the word elect, um, which we spent a little bit of time on, we actually see that the Hebrew synonym, if we have one, interlanguage synonym, is actually a word that means chosen, the chosen, which is basically what we get eklektos in the Greek as well. We see that Israel, though they were chosen by God, and this is very important because this aligns with what we believe the elect is, they failed their role as given to them by God. They were to be a light unto the nations. They were to be separate. The whole purpose of their separation from the nations was to create a difference and a gap that would make people perhaps ask the question, why are you so different? We worship a hundred million gods. Why do you worship one? You say we're wrong. You have, you're this tiny little nation we travel through to go to other places. It's, we, we joked that it was like Indiana. People don't go to Indiana to go to Indiana. They go to Indiana to get to whatever state's past Indiana. Same thing with Ohio. Nobody wants to go there. So um, I'm going to get in trouble for that. Uh, <laughs> So that being said, that's kind of how Israel was. But when they got there, they saw this majestic temple built with under the power of the Holy Spirit, as we read in the Old Testament. I mean, this thing was massive. Um, the Solomonic Temple, people from other nations would travel one, 2,000 miles to see it, which is kind of a big deal, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. These things were to draw people to God. So they failed that role. How did they do that? Well, uh, what we know from the Old Testament, highlighted specifically in the book of Ezekiel, actually, is that they basically adopted every pagan practice that came into their country. Um, Solomon was dealt with very harshly when he had many foreign wives. The Bible never says you can have more than one wife. The fact that they do isn't a testament to what we should do. It's not prescriptive. It's just descriptive of what they did. And we see them judged for it. So that being said, um, as of last, last week, we read this idea that Israel's primary consequence for their sin 
other than mass destruction and death as a result of this under the Babylonians was their dispersion. We see this specifically after AD 70. Now, Israel's first post-dispersion regathering would be in preparation for her judgment. This is quite important, and this is something that a lot of people miss, because when they see this idea of regathering, a lot of biblical scholars will just say, well, this is specifically talking about the regathering to Jerusalem under, uh, under Nehemiah, like that, that reference in Nehemiah. That's basically what they'll suggest. They'll, they'll make this argument that whenever you see regathering, it's talking about that, because they want eighty seventy to be the end game, or they want that entire process to be where it stops. And if they can do that, then there's no future regathering. But what's interesting is that a lot of the verses that were pertained to this were either during or after that time period. What's more is that the Jews were not regathered after the Babylonian dispersion into Jerusalem as a judgment. The judgment was the 70 years they were in captivity prior to that under the Babylonian dispersion. So that being said, this is a future, and I would argue now, regathering, which is in preparation for judgment. We read the verses that supported that last week. They're written right there in the brackets. Now, sadly, uh, we read last week as well, specifically in Zechariah chapter 13, verses 7 through 9, that two-thirds of the nation of Israel is going to be cut off during this time period that's coming upon the whole world. Now, just to put all of this back into perspective, one might ask, well, why are we looking at all of this history of Israel? We were reading about the elect in Matthew 24 that Jesus is gathering from the four winds. Why on earth are we reading about Israel? Well, what we're trying to prove is that because Jesus didn't say the elect, which is you, the disciples, and your spiritual descendants in the church. He didn't define who the elect are. We see this in quite a bit in the book of Matthew in particular because Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. So when you're talking to an audience that you've already spent a lot of time teaching, why would you go to all of the work to reteach them the meaning behind every term? That would be obnoxious. Um, Rather than doing that, he simply reaches into their history, their lineage, reaches uh, into their past to develop these ideas. So when he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, well, why is he saying the kingdom of heaven? Well, Matthew's trying not to say the kingdom of God, Right, because he's talking to a Jewish audience who don't want to say the word of the word God incorrectly, because they believe it's going to cause a judgment on them if they do. They believe it's uh, insincere. They believe it's unbiblical. They believe it's wrong to say the name of God uh, because they don't know how it was originally pronounced. So that being said, he's talking to a Jewish audience. We talked about the kingdom a lot because it's a great example. He never defines the kingdom. In order to figure out what the kingdom is, we have to go to the Old Testament where it's not only briefly defined, it's defined through the entirety of the Old Testament. But prophecies about the original creation. We, we see Adam and Eve in a three, theocratic administration under God, where God is ruling over man, and man then rules over creation. We, we see that change. We see it progress through the Old Testament, working its way past just a normal theocratic kingdom to a a judge system where the judges were in charge to a monarchical kingdom all the way up to the point where David's ruling. And then we see prophecies about the future, about how Jesus is going to be the ultimate fulfillment of the throne of David on the earth. And this is going to be the messianic kingdom in the future. 
we don't get that from one verse in the New Testament. We have to go to the Old Testament. So when we see this word for elect, we read that and interpret that in the basis of revelation that's been given. That's how the Bible works. That's how biblical interpretation works. We don't uh, develop a definition of the kingdom in the New Testament and then read it back into all the scriptures in the Old Testament. It's quite the opposite. God doesn't change his mind in the way that we would change our mind. God doesn't say something one day and that change in the future. If you have something in the future that's spoken on that subject, it's simply adding to that topic. So that being said, that's why we're looking at the elect because we're trying to figure out what Jesus would have meant in Matthew 24 when he said those words because that's how we interpret the Bible. Now, this is where we actually left off last week. Um, This idea that Israel has actually been prophesied Having all of that uh, minutiae in her background, having all of that failure, all of these promises of being regathered for judgment, we actually see that she has prophesied to one day call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And we have actually gone through all of these verses. We're going to go through a few of them, though. So let's go to Zechariah. That's where we'll start today. I'm going to go all the way to the end <laughs> of that list. I welcome you to read all of them. Uh, when when you have a little bit more time. So if you go to the book of Zechariah and you start in chapter 9, we're actually going to be starting in verse 11. assuming I can split this page. (laughs) So that being said, starting in verse 11, well, actually, no, well, yeah. It says, for as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. If you move forward into chapter 12, we'll start at verse 10. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of the firstborn. In that day, there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn every family by itself, and the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family in the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by themselves, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that remain every family by itself and their wives by themselves. Why on earth would they be doing this? Well, because of their history, what they did to the Messiah. Not only what they did to the Messiah, because this is actually pertaining to what's going to be following the tribulational period, what they did to the king, this descendant, the seed of David, of the line of David, who was to bring the kingdom. What they did to their king. So what are they actually doing? They are looking to him and ultimately going to trust him and fall under that verse that we just read, under the covenant. 
That, that is something, it's easy to marginalize past, but that's the whole point. They're going to be falling under the new covenant as a nation. And then that's when the verses in uh, Jeremiah actually come to full fruition. We'll be looking at that after we look at Romans 11. Um, so just kind of bear in mind, and we'll actually, we'll read this in uh, Verse, we'll start in verse 7 of chapter 13. I just want to get to this point first. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against this man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones, and it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third part will be left in it. So a third of the nation of Israel is going to survive. Of that third, it says, verse 9, I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them. They will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Hold that thought in your head, this idea that they're calling on his name, and this is the result. So if we go to Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 25, to complete that thought, I just want to kind of make this point. So now, just as a reminder, having talked about the majority of the theological aspects of the book of Romans, because Romans has a pretty heavy, meaty load of theology about what's true about humanity, what's true about Christians, and what's true about us, he then takes a slight sideline and answers the question about the Roman, not the Romans, the Jews, because he's just talked about all of these wonderful promises that God gave to us as Christians and believers. He's now answering the question, what about the promises God already made to the Jews in the past? So chapter 11, we'll start at verse 25. It says, for I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove the ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Which covenant is that talking about? Is that the Davidic covenant? No. This is talking about the new covenant, when he's talking about when I take away their sins. Because as we're going to read in Jeremiah chapter 30, um, or 31, we, this is when he's talking about how he's going to give them a new heart. Again, it says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, that, that word, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of the disobedience, so these also have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. So this is kind of the framework that we're looking at as we're looking at biblical prophecy going into the future. You could read the New Testament and know none of that. Because God's word starts in Genesis, ends in Revelation. And his word is one unit. 66 books that don't contradict each other, that tell one story and give us history, they give us theology, they give us Christology as we're able to look at who Christ is from 
Again, Genesis to Revelation, we see who Christ is. Genesis 3.15 to Revelation 22. I mean, it's, it's all in there. And so that's really, the reason I'm emphasizing that, even though everybody in this room knows that, is because when we're looking at these opposing viewpoints, we're not talking about people who are new in their uh, Christian life, who haven't really had the time to study the Old Testament. We're talking about people who've been teaching through the New Testament. We have Old Testament scholars here. We have people that have been teaching longer than I've been alive. And they've still come to these conclusions because they're reading it through a theological lens. They're not looking at the Bible as a whole. Um, I think it was, let's see if I'm misquoting him. I think it was actually Andy Woods that said that um, he didn't want to be an Old Testament scholar. He didn't want to be a New Testament scholar. He wanted to be a biblical scholar because you could get really good in the Old Testament, right, and neglect the New Testament. You could get really hyper-focused in the New Testament, like Daryl Bach, and then neglect this entire reality of the kingdom being a physical entity, not a spiritual one. There, may, there are always spiritual aspects of a physical entity that God makes doesn't make it a spiritual one. So you miss out in certain areas because you hyper-focus on another. That's what we're trying to not do. Um, that being said, what is the last point that we want to make on this? Well, first of all, we're almost out of time, but we'll look at Matthew 24 because I want to put this, frame this back into perspective before I answer the question. Um, because what are we actually trying to accomplish here? We're trying to answer a legitimate counter-argument a post-tribulationist may have about the idea of <clears throat> the pre-tribulational rapture. Because if I'm reading through Matthew 24, which is talking about the signs of the times going into the tribulational period up until the point of Christ's second coming, that's the goal of this, this uh, description, and I read something that says, verse 29 of chapter 24, but immediately after the tribulation of those days and the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, second coming. Okay? And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Very Jewish. Again, we're talking about the Jews. Will mourn as they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he, Jesus, will send forth his angels with a great trumpet there's a reference to the trumpet again. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So the question is, well, if you're believing this is the rapture, well, it sure sounds like the rapture. We're talking about Christ coming in the clouds, there being a trumpet, and his elect being gathered from the four winds. How do we determine who the elect are? This is after the tribulational period. Didn't, uh, doesn't it say in Revelation 3.10 that we're not going to be going through the time of the testing that's going to come upon the whole world? Doesn't 1 Thessalonians 1 verse uh, 9 going into verse 10 actually say basically the same thing? That we're not destined for wrath? See that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 9 as well. So like, this seems like a contradiction. Maybe we just read those other verses wrong and this is actually just telling it's a post-tribulational event. We know that's not true because we're making an assumption about the identity of the elect because suddenly we are arguing that the elect is a technical term that refers to the church. It does not. We went into a lot of detail to show why that's not the case, looking at every usage of that word in the Bible a little bit farther back in the study. So that being said, in order to figure out the, who the elect are, we have to go 
again, to God's word. Now, we're actually going to take a moment. We're going to go to Deuteronomy. Now, whenever I say go to Deuteronomy when I'm, when I'm talking to a, to a friend or somebody that may disagree with me, they always kind of give me a look. Well, Jesus went to Deuteronomy a lot, right? It's one of the main books he quoted because Deuteronomy has a lot to say about the Messiah, right? So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we'll look at verse 29. It says, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God and he will not fail you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. Why didn't it say the covenant which you and he mutually agreed to that he could violate at any time? It says the covenant which, what? He swore to them, them being your fathers. So this is a reference to the Abrahamic covenant because it's through the Abrahamic covenant that we get the promises for a specific geographical land that the Jews are promised, a specific seed, both a lot of people, okay, a lot of seed. There, there are going to be a lot of people born through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but more specifically, a specific seed. It's how it works in the Hebrew is that it's also talking about a specific seed. We actually see this in the seed of the woman in uh, Genesis 3, verse 15. We see the same thing. We're a specific seed from the line of Eve at that point is going to crush the head of Satan. This is the Proto-Evangelium. This is the first gospel in the Bible because that's what's telling us exactly. That's the first page of the story of the gospel, which goes until the end of Revelation when we see the world going to where God actually designed it to be. So all of these things being said, when we see this, there, there are so many unconditional promises that God made the literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And... Um, when I say that they're unconditional, what I mean is that there is no condition that Israel had to fulfill in order to be eligible for the promises there. That being said, there are obviously conditions about when they're actually going to be able to take place. We see that they're going to come to full fruition in the kingdom. Both the Davidic land covenant, uh, the new covenant, these are all going to find their full point, their point of saturation in the kingdom. So, we will spend a little bit more time on this next week and we'll conclude this particular section. But just kind of keep in mind, like when we're looking at this idea of the elect, when we're trying to figure out like what the Bible's talking about, we, we have to keep in mind that our job is not to assign a meaning to a verse. Our job is to determine what the writer meant when they wrote that verse. When Jesus was speaking this and Matthew was noting it and the Holy Spirit brought it back to his recollection years later, what point was the Holy Spirit trying to make with this particular verse? There's only one meaning to this verse. This isn't, it's, uh, it's a doctrine of one meaning. When you're interpreting the Bible, there's one meaning. If I write a sentence that says, what is the context of Matthew 24? I'm asking a very specific question. If I say that Jesus was speaking to his disciples, that has one meaning. It means he's speaking to his disciples. Language works in a linear fashion. This isn't uh, postmodern grammar school. God designed human language in order to transmit his revelation. That means that God himself, being the author of human language, being the author of the written language, understands that there are rules of grammar, which means that when he's transmitting information, it is to 
reveal things. It is revelation. It is to give you information, not to make you question information. It's, it's to enlighten you, not to confuse you. And so when we're reading things like Matthew 24, saying that he's going to gather the elect from the four winds, we have prophecies, which we're going to spend time on next week, of Israel being gathered from the four corners of the earth. Again, we're not developing an uh, interpretation of this. We're trying to figure out what he actually meant. We're, we're not Catholic popes. We are just Christians who are part of the priestly ministry under Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're trying to figure out what he meant when he wrote those words. I can't emphasize that enough. So next week, we will look at this and conclude argument number four. We'll get to the fifth argument. Um, as it pertains to this question about who the elect are that are gathered from the four winds. And then this slide, as we interact with every other viewpoint, because every other viewpoint always messes up who the elect is, with the exception of the pre-wrath rapture. Most of the time, they would actually agree with us um, and go back to the Old Testament to determine who this is. But most of the other viewpoints do not. Um, pre pre uh, Partial rapture is pretty bad about that, too. So we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and we will spend a little bit more time on this next week. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Again, these promises, not just for us, but the promises that the literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob um, we pray for them as a country, knowing the time of distress that's going to be coming upon them as they go into the tribulational period. Lord, we, we pray that you don't tarry. <laughs> we pray for the rapture. Um, we, we would long to be with you, to not be in this world anymore, to be able to spend time with you intimately in heaven as your bride, watching the things in earth ha happen as you're bringing the earth back to the point where you want it to be. Lord, we pray for these things, and we also pray Thank you for the promises that you made to, to Israel. The fact that you are still fulfilling those promises today show us that you can be trusted to fulfill the promises you've also made to us. Lord, we pray for these things and we ask that you help us to have discernment as we're looking into these matters and also just understand that the goal is not to just be right for the sake of being right, but the goal is to simply know you better, to know you more intimately because our good Ortho, orthodoxy will guide our good orthopraxy as our good doctrine will help guide our moves in the most logical way manner that you would have us do. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.